I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You've heard a bit about the 12 tribes if you listened to my interview with Tim Elliott in November. It's a group that a lot of Sydney ciders know from their common ground bakeries and market stalls, or their Yellow Deli Cafe in the Blue Mountains. They've regularly had a stall at the Woodford Folk Festival in Queensland in the past, and at the Royal Easter Show. But Tim Elliott and Camille Bianchi's podcast Inside the Tribe examines the less public-facing aspects of the organisation, and if you haven't already, I would highly recommend that you listen to it. Matthew Klein's story is one that's featured on Inside the Tribe, and I recently sat down with Matthew for a chat about what he learned from his time in the tribe, and what he thinks we should be doing when it comes to organisations that use coercive control over their followers. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to trauma, emotional abuse, and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of corporal punishment and has a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Thanks so much, Matt, for speaking with me today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Sarah. I know you don't want to focus too much on your journey with the 12 tribes, but in as much detail as you're comfortable with, can you briefly tell our audience about your time with the organisation? Okay. It started off with probably how did we join? Uh, My wife and I, we had two kids. I had a successful business, uh, nice home, couple of cars. We weren't searching for anything in particular, or I wasn't. Um, My wife was suffering, I believe, with postnatal depression, and we had a very sick child as well, which meant we didn't get very much sleep. And 
My wife was sort of obviously searching for something, so we'd become Christians and we'd, she'd also become organic vegan as well. Um, and despite all of these uh, lifestyle changes, our child still remained sick. And at that point, we weren't vaccinating due to a reaction with um, one of the vaccinations for my daughter. Uh, so we weren't really welcome in the mainstream hospital system. So our doctor at the time recommended we went to the uh, 12 tribes for some possible respite care where they could help with our baby at night and maybe we could get some sleep, which would have been nice. Um, and eventually that all happened and uh, my wife looked at this this place and without telling me, went to the leaders there and said, oh, I want to leave my husband and join. Um, and they said, no, 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 you've got to win your husband over. So uh, that's where my journey to being pulled into this, this group began. Um, so over a period of about seven or eight months, they worked really hard on me with the, the love bombing. So every time I turned up, you know, I got to speak to the cool guys in the group and they were very enthusiastic about me and really, you know, told me what a great asset I am and how good, how many skills I have. And if you ever did want to live here, you know, we'd, they'd really appreciate it and they really need people like me and, you know, you want to do God's work and you don't want to be a hypocrite. Um, yeah, so they, they worked really hard on me to, to get me to join. And I used to go back to my church minister, who was completely useless, and I'd give them all the literature they'd given me, and he'd say, oh, it's all wrong, it's all wrong, but I'll, I'll talk to you about it later. And, and he never did. He was so far out of his depth. He should have gone and got help. He didn't. I ended up joining. And look, I don't, I don't blame him, but there were a few, few things there that you know, might have made my life different. And so, yeah, we ended up joining, uh, got baptised, and then the second I was baptised, all the love bombing stopped. <laughs> and I remember standing there going, wow, what do I do now? And just went back to my room with my wife and two kids and, uh, yeah, started my journey in the 12 tribes. And how long were you involved? I was only in for two years, like, I was in and out very, very quickly, and I believe it's due to my integrity. I asked many questions before I joined. I asked, you know, what, wh where do you get your authority from? And they said, the Bible is our only authority. Um, and do you have any leaders? No, we, we don't have any leaders. Everyone's equal. Everyone's needs get met. And do you have anything other than the Bible? No, it's just, just the Bible. And... So they also told me things like, you know, th there are no rules. You know, you only have to do something if you have faith in it. Like if you've got conviction, then you should do it. But if you don't have conviction about something, then, then you don't have to do it. And I really believed them that that was true. And I reminded them of that <laughs> when I left, that basically they'd, they'd lied to me. And that, that, wasn't, that wasn't fair. So I was in... Australia for the first um, 12, 13 months, and then due to the incident at SOCOG that you can hear on other podcasts, got sent to America, then from America I got sent to Canada, and I was in Canada for eight months where all the scales fell off my eyes, and I could see it for what it was, and I could see how hypocritical they were, even worse than the, the church that I'd left, 
and that people there didn't actually have any faith in what they were doing. So I ended up leaving. And I'll just say quickly for listeners, a reminder to just listen to the Inside the Tribe podcast if you want to hear more details of Matt and his story and his family's story. That's where you should really get into all of the ups and downs of what happened. So what, if anything, do you think is dangerous about the way that the 12 tribes operates? Firstly, they're not honest. Like they they tell you they're going to look after and care for you and and they don't. Um, So... Once you join and you've given up all, all of your money and all of a sudden your friends aren't welcome anymore and your uh, family isn't really encouraged to visit or, in my case, you get sent overseas, um, you're totally dependent on the leaders uh, for all of your wants and needs. If I needed new underpants because they're all worn out, I had to ask and it would then possibly be bought for me and then given to me and then I was meant to accept that as some sort of wonderful present that they were really caring and looking after me when I'd only just worked a 90-hour week for them and, uh, (laughs) you know, I should be thankful that I was getting fed and clothes. Um, But then it gets even more insidious. Uh, The most dangerous thing that I came across in there is as a when I had my third child that was born there uh, at two weeks old he he contracted RSV bronchiolitis and at this stage fortunately we're still in contact with our doctor because we'd been in contact with her before we joined and we rang the doctor and she said get your son to hospital right now and I had to go to the leaders to say can I have the keys to my car? I need to take my son to the hospital. And the th- I still remember the three leaders looking at me and said, well, if you want to take your child to the hospital, you can. However, if you have faith that our God can heal your son, we will support you in that decision. So all of a sudden, my child's health was based on my faith. And... I had to, it was almost like a test. It's like, are you going to prove to us that you have faith in God, that you will not take your child to the hospital, but you will just pray and God will heal your son. However, they had the out of, we will support you in this decision. We're not telling you to do it. (laughs) We'll just support you in this decision. Uh, I said, uh, give me the car keys, please. I'm off to hospital. And in the waiting room, uh, in the emergency room, he actually stopped breathing twice. And if I hadn't have taken him, he he would have died. So there are those dangers. There's the the lack of health care that particularly the pregnant women get. And this is highlighted in in the other podcasts as well. Um, Because you're malnourished. Like my time in Winnipeg in particular, like the food in Australia is pretty good. Okay. (laughs) I... I certainly was very healthy over here, but once I got to Winnipeg, um, my wife and I had dental checks before we left to go to America, and halfway through our time in Winnipeg, um, my wife all of a sudden needed uh, two root canals, a couple of teeth removed, she had abscesses in her mouth, she'd lost half her hair, and um, yeah, she wasn't doing well. She was in so much pain, she actually said I'd prefer to go through childbirth again which she did without any pain relief than what she was experiencing in the, in the 12 tribes. 
And I'm saying to the leaders, we need to get her to a doctor because what you guys have been doing is not working. And they just said, well, we've got no money, you can't go. And, it, and so you, you, you don't have the option of being able to look after and care for your own family or even your own health. And so there are those dangers. Then, you know, for the children in there, you know, the, the physical discipline hurts and everyone's horrified at the physical discipline and, yes, it's, it's, it's not good and it should not happen. But it's more the psychological effect that it has on them. I've, I've got this one young friend who grew up in there and he's hyper-vigilant now because every adult he saw as an enemy, he, he was just waiting to, who am I going to get in trouble off now? Why am I going to get hit? He didn't know why he was getting hit. And so he now can't function in society because he can't trust anyone. He's looking over his shoulder the whole time and he, his, his life is, is not a pleasant one and it's all because of these, you know, narcissistic, you know, control freaks in the 12 tribes feel that every child is identical and every child should be hit all the time for any infraction. And, and it's that psychological abuse. And then as a parent, if you do finally get out of the 12 tribes, the guilt that you have for what you put your children through can sometimes be crushing. And that you don't get over that by, you know, going down to the pub and having a couple of beers or, you know, going and having a few counselling sessions. It becomes a lifelong problem. And the, the sad reality is most people who leave the 12 tribes don't get the psychological help they need. And so they run away and hide, pretend everything was okay. And, you know, they're not living their lives to the full either. And so there's that flow on effect and that these people come out after maybe spending 20 years there. They have no money. They have no super. They have no skills that they can go get a job with. They've, <laughs> they've, they've got no references. They've got no education. Um, and so then society has to help, you know, try and, and look after them. And, and in Australia, like when I left, I was really lucky. I went on to a single parent pension and I could survive. That doesn't happen in the States. Um, and quite often parents will stay because they know if they leave, they may have their children taken off them by, by the state because they're not providing housing for them because they can't provide housing because they've got no money, they've got no references, they've got no friends and family. And so it, it just becomes this real trap, trap for people. And then there's the spiritual abuse that, you know, people think, you know, God's looking at them the whole time. They're going to go to hell for, you know, well, firstly for leaving. Like they can't stay there because physically their bodies start actually shutting down. So they leave, but then they have the guilt of, well, now I'm going to hell. And, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lifelong uh, sentence you have. Once you've joined the 12 tribes, I was only in there for two years. I still struggle with stuff because of it, you know. The worst thing I have is their bloody songs keep coming into my head <laughs> and I haven't been in there for like 22 years and I'll be working and their songs just come and start playing in my head and it's really, really, really horrible. So, yeah. yeah. it must be quite triggering for you. It's more annoying than triggering at this point, okay, but it's good. just like, <laughs> just leave me alone. <laughs> just go away. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of things I want to touch on there. Um, the first is 
you mentioned they would say that they didn't have any money to get someone healthcare or other needs when and and the reality is that there's plenty of money there right well when i was there i just thought they were complete incompetent idiots how can we be running the easter show the woodford folk festival raking in all this money but we never knew how much money actually came in um thanks to the podcast i now know they were making lots of money but it's you know, they like to live in this constant state of we have no money, we need to do a work push so we can make some money to build the house or to buy this, to buy that. And then, oh, we need to support other communities overseas. And so the individual's needs were always met last. And, yeah, and, and also a restricted diet does help um, subdue the masses. So I'm pretty sure that was part of their the way they operated as well. Yeah, and on top of bringing in money from the business ventures that you mentioned, those and others, when you join, you hand over all of your belongings and possessions, correct? Uh, yeah, correct. So when when I joined, I had a really nice house that I sold. Um, all the possessions got either given away or sold. My cars, they, they took over. And any cash at, at the end of it, after I paid off all my loans, uh, got given to the to the 12 tribes. And yeah, and there were also things like my wife was given some very expensive diamonds. They were all handed over. God knows what happened to them, probably pawned off at 10% of the value. Yeah, so you, you lose everything. And that, that doesn't worry me. I wouldn't mind losing everything again. I'd, I'd like to clear everything out and start from scratch. I've got way too much stuff in my life. <laughs> so that doesn't worry me. It's the deception that goes with it. Yeah, and I think I'm just thinking of it in terms of the money that is actually there. Mm. And then you've got people working really long, hard hours for free. And in Australia, the Fair Work Commission doesn't consider that to be as employees, right? It's you're, you're considered volunteers. That That's correct. And I think there's some laws that maybe need to come into Australia. Like, I, I volunteer myself. I'm in the RFS. I volunteer for rock climbing associations as a judge. Um, I do all sorts of volunteer work and it's reasonable. It's, it's my hours and it's, it's, it's not onerous. Um, but there's no way. Like the biggest work day I put in was a 52-hour work day. And that's as a volunteer and it was dangerous. And that's like you wouldn't do that very often, but it's most... Most men in that uh, group would um, so yeah, we, we've done something similar. And I don't mind working really hard. I've, I'm not complaining, oh, the tribes, they, they made me work hard. No. A lot of the time it wasn't too bad. Some of the times it was terrible during the big events like the Easter show. I fortunately never got to go to Woodford because that would have I would not have enjoyed that at all. Um, but then when I was in uh, Winnipeg, there was some really stupidly long and dangerous work hours over there in the engineering workshop. And, yeah, so, but not everyone works hard either. It's a bit like uh, the old animal farm. Yeah, we're all equal. Some of us are more equal than others. And some of us worked really hard. And some of them worked really hard not to work. <laughs> and they just feathered their nests and had little business trips here and there and, yeah, they, they had quite a nice life. Were they were they those more at the top or? Oh, at the top, for sure. You know, there's definitely a hierarchy there. And uh, the higher up you get, uh, the easier your, your life becomes. 
you know, and there was particularly in Winnipeg, there was one guy who virtually did nothing, had his own car, had credit cards, went on business trips, would flit into the candle shop and watch the two employees making candles and then walk out again. And yeah, he was absolutely useless. So I remember going to the first uh, business meeting in Winnipeg. They were very excited to have this guy from Australia who'd run his own businesses and, you know, had been there a couple of months. And they said, oh, could you come in and tell us what you think? And I just told them, apart from the machine shop, shut everything down. You're better off sending everyone to McDonald's and working $5 an hour than what you're trying to do here because all these businesses are costing you money. You could be renting the space out of these factories and making 10 times more than what you're, what you're currently making. You know, it's, it is completely pointless. And that was the last meeting I ever got invited to. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's astonishing even with all free labour that they were not profitable. Yeah, that was, that was useless. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like like it, Winnipeg in particular, I mean, the machine shop made a fair bit of money, which then supported the rest of the community to work hard at not working. And yeah. Yeah. And I guess the, the point that I'm kind of driving at with all of the unpaid labour and the handing over of the belongings and that sort of thing is that it seems pretty wild that if you then leave, you leave with absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, most people run away in the middle of the night because they try and get people to stay and they guilt trip them. Um, you know, for me, I, I left on my own terms and I wasn't scared of the leaders. In fact, I went back to have a meeting with the leaders after I left to say, look, you guys lied to me, you know, this, this is what I saw and this is what I saw in Winnipeg and it's really dysfunctional and you guys really need to sort some stuff out. And, um, yeah, well, the big leader in Australia, Noon, he, he ran away. He didn't even turn up to the meeting. And the others just sat there and said nothing because they had nothing to come back at me at. Um, they knew I was right. And at the end of it, they just said, well, you're rebellious. And it's just like, wow, that's that's all you've got? <laughs> you know, that's all you've got? Didn't answer a single question. And then said, and, and don't you believe that God can talk to us directly these days? Meaning that Yannick did have a direct pipeline to God and his teachings were infallible. Um, despite all the inconsistencies and the false prophecies, they still thought they were infallible. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, and, and you look in Australia, like like the Yellow Deli in, up in Katoomba, it's got free labour and by reports, a lot of a lot of these young people up there working are, are doing, you know, 14, 15, 16 hour days regularly. They don't get paid. There's no superannuation. There's no workers' comp. There, there's no money going back into the government. And then they're competing against all these other businesses who are paying their staff, paying their super, you know, putting money back into the community and trying to compete with this, this church, you know, volunteer group, which is not a volunteer, it, it, it's a business. You know, they don't give out free meals. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point. And um, I wonder what you feel is on the consumer when it comes to places like the Yellow Deli? Well, most consumers don't know. They just think it's a quirky little thing. I know when it first opened, a lot of the locals were going there. I don't think many of them go there now. I think 
there's enough press out there to say, hey, don't go there. But, I mean, they've set up next to a backpackers. And the reason is you get the international student or international young traveller and they're going off on this big, exciting trip and it's not that exciting and they actually get quite lonely and they feel depressed and they don't know what they want to do with their lives. They go into this place and they actually recruit quite a few people from the backpackers across the road. So a lot of their business is, is not from locals, it's, it's from people coming in because it is a big tourist town. And the things like TripAdvisor, <laughs> you know, I think it's got a very high rating on TripAdvisor, you know. It's a beautiful space. If you go in there, it's absolutely beautiful, right? Yeah. It only took them two years to do. <laughs> oh, I won't go into that. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, there's a lot of incompetence there. Um, yeah, it's... But what, what do you do? You know, they it's it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Do, I guess my question is, do you think that um, an individual who's visiting Katoomba who is aware of the background of a place like the Yellow Deli, should they withdraw their business from somewhere like that? If you support beating children and abusing women and vulnerable people, then go and give them your money. But um, And that knowing that money is probably going overseas to feather some bigwig's nest who's living off the labour of everyone else. However, if you don't support those sorts of things, maybe maybe go to the cafe across the road. <laughs> There's plenty of really good cafes in Katoomba other than the Yellow Deli. Mm. I, I was relieved to hear you say that in Australia the food was quite good because that was one thing I was really distressed about was having, you know, before I knew about the background I'd eaten at the Yellow Deli, I'd bought food from Common Ground bakeries and stalls and I thought, well, the food is absolutely fantastic. So at the very least, the people are eating well, right? Yeah, like they don't eat as well as you do when you go to the cafe. Now, I mean, things may have changed, but I know when I was there, we used to sell organic bread, which was 10% organic flour, 90%, you know, 80, 20 baker's mix. And they would justify it saying, well, some of the flour is organic, so we'll sell it as organic bread. Um even, wow, this spelt bread is so good. How do you get the spelt bread so good? Well, it's 20% spelt, 80% normal flour. That's how you actually <laughs> get it to taste good. And then that was being transported in the back of plumber's trucks and utes and, you know, like, <laughs> it, was just, it was just horrific. And it, even when I was in there, it's just like, we're deceiving these people. This is not organic. There's nothing, there's virtually nothing organic about it. Interesting. Um, but it's, it's all about the image. It's, it's not about, you know, the reality. Mm. And, you know, so that, to me, their organic breads is like their love they have for one another. <laughs> you know, it's 20% real, 80% fake. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's a metaphor for the entire thing. Yeah. So... You've already touched on this, but I'm not sure if there might be a bit more that you want to say about your departure from the tribes and what made you decide to disengage. Uh, I was over in Winnipeg during the 9-11 um, sort of incident and that was a really surreal day for me. My parents were actually visiting. I actually had more visitors in Winnipeg than even the locals had, um, which is really important. We'll touch on that later. Um, I was already starting to question a whole lot of things. 
like when I joined, I believed everything because I didn't know any of the secret teachings. And then that add a little teaching on. And you go, well, I've given everything up. I'm not going to leave because I don't believe in, you know, 2% of what I've been told. And then they just keep adding to it and adding to it. And I got to Winnipeg and I thought, you know, I believe that we should love God by loving one another. But I don't actually see this happening here. And I believe in 20% of the teachings, but 80%, I I think, is complete rubbish. And... I actually made a friend in the 12 tribes who I could talk to. And so we, we used to walk to work, which is about four or five Ks in the morning. And it wasn't because we loved walking. We just wanted that freedom of not, not being surrounded by other tribe members. And we just started talking. And we started reciting Monty Python to each other, The Life of Brian, uh, which is complete blasphemy. <laughs> but uh, we, and we, just, we were just normal. You know, we were mates, and then we started, uh, and this is rather naughty of us. <laughs> okay, So we used to have to fast on Fridays to save money to send to some urgent need, whether it was the boat or, you know, tribes in South America or something. Um, and he was the head of the workshop, and he said, oh, Matt, we need to go do a pickup. So we'd go off to an all-you-could-eat buffet, <laughs> 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 just, just eat lunch and... Yeah, because we were just we were just sick of the hypocrisy, and we knew all the other leaders were going out doing the same thing, and I could see myself rising quite easily in this organisation into a leadership role, because I'd already manipulated so many situations to get what I wanted, and it's just like, how is this any different to being out in the world? Like it is completely the same, except for you know we just live in shit conditions and in Winnipeg the food was horrific um, and that that's in like a stark contrast to the initial impression you have of the tribes is a community of people supporting each other yeah. every person according to their yeah. abilities and yeah that and kind of thing, right yeah and the longer you're there it's just like man just some people are really full of their own voices and so the morning gatherings you know that somebody get up and talk, and then it'd repeat the same thing five times. It's just like, shut up. We heard you the first time. Okay, you don't have to, you know, keep banging on about it because I don't want to stand here for an hour listening to you talk the same drivel because I know you're not living it. So why, why, why talk to us about it? Mm-hmm. So there were, the, there were those things. And there was a really key moment where one of the leaders was giving a teaching on homozygous and heterozygous genes. Now, I'm science trained. And I didn't really know about homozygous and heterozygous genes, but I knew this teaching didn't have a freaking clue what they were talking about. And this 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 leader who'd been there for 30 years, reading this teaching, and he just stopped and he goes, why can't I just talk about loving one another? And then just went back into the teaching. And it's just like, yeah, why can't you? Why do we have to listen to this rubbish when loving one another is a lot more important than this homozygous, heterozygous crap that you're going on about that you don't understand. None of us understand it. It doesn't make any sense. And we've got to sit down and listen to this drivel. And where was it coming from? It was coming from Yannick. So he'd written this teaching and everyone had to, and then some idiot gets up, oh, I'm so thankful for hearing this message. And It's just like, you, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. And so... Well, some of that stuff is kind of set up to 
like bamboozle people a bit, right? Um, I I just think he was losing his mind at this stage because it just didn't make any sense. And I think he's full of his own bullshit, you know, although he's dead now. Um, and he just, you know, thought everyone would take this on board and he had his own weird... It's just the most stupid teaching and it doesn't make any sense. And um, But everyone had to pretend it was the word of God and it certainly wasn't. And so, yeah, the, the, there were lots of little little things like that. I'd also stopped disciplining my kids, you know, for quite a while. And I saw the change in behaviour of my son in particular towards me. And it's just like the child training teachings just aren't working. And then being told things like my daughter Tessa was very, very obedient. She was terrified of being spanked. And so she never once got spanked. And we had leaders telling us, oh, you need to cross her will. You need to make her be disobedient. She needs to receive discipline. And it's like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to trick my child into doing the wrong thing just so I can spank her. Like, <laughs> no. Um, so so there were things like that. Um, then the, the health scare with my wife. Um, so they were treating her, her, um, her teeth problems as an earache. And so what they were doing was actually drawing a lot of the a lot of the infection over towards the ear, and they were lucky it didn't actually get into her brain and kill her. And I was just like, no, how how dare you say I'm the head of the household if I can't even get my wife medical treatment? And then once once they finally realised it was teeth and we went to the dentist and there was all this dental work, they came to me and said, you need to ask your parents to pay for her dental work. And I just looked at them and said, no. Oh, but we can't afford it. I said, well, when I joined, you said all of my needs would be met. It's not all of my needs would be met, well, except for dental, that you've got to go back to your parents for. Um, I said, no, you guys have got to provide us with dental. Oh, but you're not from our tribe. It's like, so? We're, <laughs> we're all one, aren't we? It's like, and all of a sudden, it's just like, this is just a crock. You know, I was still enjoying my time there. I was still doing stuff, which I enjoyed the work I was doing there, trying to develop a soap manufacturing industry and had some alternative energy stuff that I was working on. And um, and then another big event, they did this thing called the Washington DC event where we were going to showcase the 12 tribes to Washington because obviously that's the centre of the world and if Washington accepts us, then the whole world should accept us because it is very American-centred. And they were going to make a big food trailer and two weeks before the event and Winnipeg was going to make it because they had a really good engineering workshop and some really good welders and fabricators. And about, you know, maybe two or three weeks before the event, I thought, oh, we mustn't be doing it because otherwise we would have started a month ago. No, all of a sudden we've, we've got a week and a half to build this thing. And so we built this trailer from the ground up, except for the axles. There were two proper truck axles that we incorporated into this, this full-on semi-trailer size um, mobile cafe. And we you know, were working you know, very, very long hours to get it done. And then noon, the idiot, can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> and we'd, we'd built it as per the plans that noon had drawn and we'd welded all the windows in, ground it all back, powder coated it, 
And Noon turned up one afternoon and says, no, that window has to move from there to, uh, two metres over to the right. So we then had to cut out that whole wall, had to re-weld it, had to re-powder coat it for him to turn up the next morning and go, no, move it back. And it was just like, why the F is this guy in charge? <laughs> and really, how much difference does it make? You can make things work. And we've, we've just wasted 18 hours because he had a thought bubble and then we did all the work and it's all dangerous. And that really ticked me off. Understandable. And then we we're also doing things like, I mean, this trailer was amazing and we had all this aluminium welding because we had to try and keep the weight down. And the guys doing the aluminium welding didn't have any breathing gear and they're breathing in aluminium fumes. It's like, where's, where's the care for, for our own workers? Mm. And we had kids inside um, big water tanks that we'd cut a hole in the door so they could go in and, and sandblast all this aluminium. And then I had the good fortune of uh, getting to use a paint that was banned in 50 or 48 states of America because of the toxicity oh to put this nice uh, copper patina onto this aluminium, and it looked great. Um, and then in, um, in another podcast I've done with um, Gary Jubilant, I talk about illegally trying to cross borders and stuff that oh, they wanted yeah. me to do. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and um, I I'll, said, I'll, pop, I'll pop a link to that one in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then it, this this whole event goes down to Washington DC, and fortunately I I didn't go, but that's another whole story. Um, and I was watching a slideshow of this whole event with my mate who I'd made, and he just looked at me and he goes, "Yep, this is the Walt Disney version of the Twelve Tribes." And it was they're talking about their organic foods and their mate and their handmade leather shoes and you know organic breads and it's just like we were sucking in aluminium welding fumes and toxic paints and and once again it, it's it's the image they try to portray is certainly not the image that you that you live and they go oh yes but eventually this is how we want to live and it's like that that's never going to happen mm. and so. I hate hypocrites. And I'm just thinking, we're all just hypocrites. We're, we're saying we do one thing, but we do the complete opposite. And there is no love and care for one another. All we had to do was be obedient to what the leaders wanted to tell us to do. And you know what? I'm not going to do it. And you know what else? I'm going to start talking to these leaders and get them to explain these teachings to me. Because I don't believe in the 144,000. Do you? And all they'd say is the, the two best answers I got was, I find it really hard to believe myself. And another guy said, if you don't have faith, just cling on to somebody else's faith. And it's like, wow. So if, when I'm in judgment in front of God and he says, Matthew, you didn't believe. All I got to do is say, yeah, I didn't, but I, I believe Sarah believed. <laughs> is, isn't that good enough? <laughs> You know, it's just like, wow, and you've been here for 30 years and that's the best you've got? Mm. This is a joke. And then once once I started seeing that, I could see most people there weren't there because they were living by faith. They were there because they had nowhere else to go and they were trapped and I just didn't want to be in that trap. And then 9-11 happened 
And one of the leaders got up and said, you know, we need to be more like the pilots who flew the aeroplanes. Not that we want to kill anyone, but we've got to be so focused on what we're doing that nothing else matters. And I just turned to my wife and said, we need to reevaluate <laughs> why we're here. And, um, yeah, unknown to me, she was running off and dobbing on me every time I spoke to her. Um, yeah, so that was the beginning of the end. Also, my parents were still around. And fortunately for me, I, I had an out. I, I wasn't going to leave with no friends, family and no money. I knew I had a place to go and that I'd be looked after and cared for. So that made me leaving much easier. And the fact that I hung on to the reasons why I joined and I could justify it, I didn't leave with any guilt. Mm. I didn't run away in the middle of the night. Yeah, and it sounds like that's quite rare. Yeah. And I think that that's a really good point because a lot of people want to know what they can do for a friend or family member who might be sucked into a cultic group and the best advice that anyone can usually give them is to maintain that that contact and make sure that that person knows that they have somewhere to turn to if they ever do decide to disengage. Uh, absolutely. So first thing to do is no, it's not their fault. They are a victim. They've been scammed and it's they didn't willingly join a cult and there was probably something going on in their life that led them to being vulnerable to joining such a group. The second thing is never, ever call it a cult. <laughs> if, if you start getting angry, oh, you've just joined a cult, that's not going to work. In fact, after I left, I was still trying to help 12 tribes to get them back on track to where they should be. And my parents gave me all these cult books to read because they, they were well-versed by the time I got out. And I remember lying in bed reading a checklist of 10 things, is 10 things that make a group a cult. And I remember reading it going, no, no, maybe, no, 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 no. I went back and read it about a week later and go, no, well, yeah, no, yep, oh, yep, yep, oh, shit, <laughs> I was in a cult. Interesting. And But once I got that realisation, then I could start the healing and realise how I was tricked into joining and why my wife was attracted to it and how to try and get over being in there. Um, yeah, so... And I guess the futility of actually trying to help it to change. I mean, yeah. we all hope oh, that you could, yeah, was, you could try yeah, and change some of these groups, yeah. right? But it's, uh, and so, yeah, don't ever call it a cult. Get yourself educated. Read some of the books. Uh, Kifs, who you'll mention later, has some really good online resources for free and, and get help and, and realise that the person you're talking to isn't the person you used to be friends with. Um, it's uh, that friend is still in there and what comes out of their mouth may sometimes be okay, but quite often it'll just be the group think, uh, you know, they're just re talking how they're meant to talk. And particularly in emails and letters, a lot of them get checked. So they have to be very careful about um, what they put down in writing to you because they, they can get in trouble and punished for it. So... What can you tell me about the ramifications of your departure, um, both psychologically and socially for you? Uh, socially, for me, I was okay. Um, I've maintained very, very good friendships. I even maintained a few friendships whilst I was in there. And because I was in there for such a short amount of time, um, it was very easy to pick up and continue on. Um, 
that that was okay. And I had I had a safe place to go. I got a house fairly quickly, thanks to my parents. Um, so f- for me, for me, that was okay. For my kids, totally different. Um, my youngest was, oh, he was, wasn't even two when his mother handed him over to me and walked away and didn't see him for 16 years. Um, my other son was four and my daughter was al- almost six. And I think it's my daughter who had the hardest time um, because she witnessed what happened to my son, which, which I wasn't aware of until recently in the podcast, believe it or not, where she starts talking about what she witnessed with, with Bryson. So that obviously affected her quite deeply. But more than that, I'm going to try not to cry here, is um, the abandonment of a mother. And that still to this day hurts her, you know, to have a mother just, you know, ignore her and walk away and have her cry herself to sleep every night going, why does mummy hate me? You know, these, and it didn't have to be that way. You know, I was, after I left, I maintained contact with her. I used to take the kids to see her. I wasn't going to drop them off at at the at the cult to be beaten and possibly kidnapped and disappeared like many many cases have happened in the states um and then you know after a couple of months of that they sent her off to england not that they told me that they said we don't know where she is she's disappeared so those effects on the kids is is really really hard um, fortunately, I think my two boys dodged a bullet because I was so young and Bryson has no memory of, of anything in there, thankfully. Um, I Psychologically, I've got a lot of guilt about what I did and what I did was so minimal compared to what a lot of other people do. So I, I can't imagine what you know people like Mark and Rose have to deal with on a day-to-day basis because of their involvement in in the 12 tribes and you know and that that's you know medical neglect that leads to the death of babies it was completely avoidable with with the minimal basic health care that was denied them you know when i was in there that we talked about the midwives in the community i thought they were properly trained they weren't <laughs> they were just women who you know read some of the 12 tribes health notes on how to be a midwife and yeah and it's just horrific. So there's all of those psychological, you know, concerns. And then, you know, a lot of the youth who leave, you know, you're told in there if you leave, you're going to become gay, you're going to die in a car accident, you're going to go to the lake of fire, you, you know. So they leave. They know they have to get out of there, but they leave with a whole lot of guilt. And more than guilt, they leave with a whole lot of fear. Um, I had one young guy from... Canada who turned 18 left and he came and lived with me for almost 12 months because he had no family and friends so he flew from Canada to come and live with me god knows what I was doing I had three kids under the age of six and I invited this 18 year old cult kid to come and live with me for a year <laughs> um, and he I remember talking to him one night and he says Matthew I'm, I'm thinking of going back he says not because I believe any of it but at least there I know where I fit in and thankfully he didn't, and he's doing really, really well now. And uh, funnily enough, his dad will come and visit him in his massive house and his three cars and his jet ski and his boat and his skidoos and 
because he, he didn't know how to work hard, thanks to the 12 tribes. Yeah. And his father's going, oh, I think you should really come back. It's like, why? Why would I leave this to come back and work for you leaders who have no appreciation of anything I ever did? You know, forget it. <laughs> see you later. And besides which, you don't even let me see my sister anymore. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, most people might have heard some stories of uh how common it is for someone to actually go back to the cult that they left because, and it, it can be hard to understand, but it's if you've been conditioned to that for your whole life, it's an incredibly difficult thing to leave behind and to adjust to society outside. And I think that the society outside could probably be doing an awful lot more to try to help people who leave such groups. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's really hard because it's so far out of anyone's realm of experience like uh yesterday during a interview tim elliott said yeah matthew kept coming to me with stories and i just thought he was lying because i just couldn't believe what he was telling me and that was him as a journalist who should <laughs> and he now realizes that all these stories i was laying in his lap were actually 100 percent true um, but it's just so far out of our realm of expertise. We don't believe that this can go on. So it's very hard when you leave these groups to to talk to anyone about it because most people aren't going to believe you, plus all the shame and guilt that you have, at least if you go back to a, that cult, or a lot of people join different cults. <laughs> you know, they just sort of go cult shopping, um, mainly because they don't get educated and so they they don't know how to sort of critically think and how to not join these sorts of groups and, and to forgive themselves and move on and, yeah. I've spoken to a lot of women particularly who, after they've come out of a cultic group, have ended up in an abusive relationship with a man and I think it's just the familiarity of the dynamic and not having been able to get out of that cycle of that feeling like that that's normal, right? Yeah. Um, and on that note, can you tell me about your experiences of dealing with authorities after leaving the tribes? Well, this has been like a 22-year journey for me. <laughs> and, um, yeah, as soon as I got out, got a house, got stable, um, I contacted Docs. And Docs came and interviewed me with two very lovely young, I won't say women, they were, they were like 20, 20-year-old women, girls. And they took my statement and I ended up getting a copy of it through the Freedom of the Press, uh, Freedom of Information. Information. Yeah. And every detail they got wrong, every date they got wrong, every name they got wrong. And look, I was, you know, I was focusing on my family and it was just like, well, what's the point of doing this? Um, I then... Uh, I had to go through the court system to get custody of my children. And I'll tell you what, as a single dad, when you turn up at court and go, magistrate, I, I don't know where my wife is, they don't believe you. <laughs> so after three different appearances, I finally got, you know, got custody of my kids, uh, which, which was good. I went to the Royal Agricultural Society to say, look, why is this group allowed in to the Easter show to make... Oh, they would have made half a million dollars or more each each show easily, yet other religious groups aren't. And they use it not only to sort of make money from you guys but also to recruit. And they had religious material out, not interested. I went to the 
the local fire authority at Picton. Uh, there's all this illegal accommodation. There's the single women's room. There's one room that has, you know, 10 or 12 women sleeping in it. It doesn't even have a window. So if there's a fire, there's a single door. And I know there was a fire in there once because they put their headscarfs over a lamp to make a nice mood lighting and that caught on fire. You know, how is that allowed? There's a single men's room with, you know, 20, 30 guys in there, um, which stuck to high heaven, by the way. Um, how, how, is, how is that allowed? And they came back, no problem. Um, Picton Council, there's all these not only illegal buildings, but there's all these illegal people sleeping there. Like the property was meant to be for a family of six. The septic tank was for a family of six. And there was like 80 people living there, um, if not more. But I remember once when I was still a part of the 12 tribes, the council came out for a complaint. And I remember walking around with one of the leaders, probably Andrew Hundleby, and the council guy was telling him what answers to give him. So how many people live here? About 20. Yes. Okay, we'll put that down. And, you know, um, things like they put in a new septic tank that was getting pumped to the top of the hill that was meant to go through a reed bed and filtration system that never got built. As far as I know, it's still spewing out pure sewage to the top of the hill that just goes... The council does nothing. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I contacted uh, WorkSafe uh, about you know all their you know young people and people unticketed working on demolition sites. Like I was left in charge of a demolition site once. You know, I'm an industrial chemist. I'm pretty smart. I almost had the house fall down on me <laughs> at one point because you know I didn't have the experience. Yeah. They didn't care. Why? Because there's no employees. They're all volunteers. So every step of the way, um, people, it was in the too hard basket because it was a church, it was volunteers. Then this whole police investigation, you know, I, you know, I talked to Mark and Rose. I said, I want to have one last attempt. So I convinced them that we should report Rose's stillborn child and that it was illegally buried, had it bigger, and we went in, we saw a, a detective, we made our statements, she asked us to come in later and sign them, um, and we said, please don't don't pass this on to Campbelltown or Picton Police because they're in, they sort of got friends in there. Um, they never got us back to sign them, so they're not official documents. They passed it on. Nothing happened, and then six or seven months later, we get called back again. Oh, can you come in and make a statement regarding buried children? This was a different detective, and it's just like, don't you already have my statement? No, we, we can't find it. So we went back in. <laughs> we had to go through it all again, which is quite traumatic for, for Mark and Rose. Yes, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to get straight onto this and... Three months later, oh, yes, I'm, I've been really busy, four months later. Then I go to a current affair and, um, yeah, and Alison was was brilliant and her producer was, was brilliant. All of a sudden there's a task force 
you know, and all of a sudden things start happening. And I'm talking to the senior detective and he said, we'll have these guys in court in five to six weeks. And that was three years ago. You know, I've, there's the, they may be shutting the case due to lack of evidence. I don't know how you can dig up one, if not two, and possibly three bodies and not have evidence. I, I don't understand how you can have all of their financial records that uh, Scott Zarnicki directed them to, where they claim for the last 10 years they've been earning $280,000 and have all the financial records and not be able to charge someone with something, that they're buying all these properties, yet no one's got an income and they're only earning $280,000 a year according to their the charity tax report that they have to put in or financial statements they have to put in. They have lost their charity status and I know they're trying hard to get it back. When did that happen? Uh, I don't know because no one bothered to tell me because why would they tell me? And um, But it has happened in the last couple of years since the police investigation. Right. So that may have come as a result of that and that's great. That's That's really good. But more needs to happen like these these leaders need to be held accountable and and they're just not they're just getting away with it because oh it's a church it's a too hard basket you know well if we do that to this group maybe we have to do it to the catholic church or whatever and it's i like it's 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 so corrupt <laughs> this this organization and the police just don't seem to put the resources into it and the councils just just don't want to deal with it. And so they just continue to get away with abusing all these vulnerable people, like the number of people who have left the 12 tribes in the last, in just in Australia, there'd, there'd be 100, maybe 200 people. And who has to pay f for them as they go on disability pensions and, you know, housing, you know, uh, supplements and, and all of that is the taxpayer. It's, it's costing the whole of society to have this group abuse these people, spit them out, and then society has to look after them. Mm. Yeah, but I guess in a way, if society has decided not to bother doing anything to stop these groups, then I feel like we should, the least we can do is provide for the people who come out of them. <laughs> 100%, like 100%. However, I think if society, if we had a referendum on... Should we do more to shut down cults? I think most people <laughs> might tick the yes box. Um, the politicians don't like it because it's hard. But it doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's hard. And we need to sort of reevaluate our, our government and churches' relationships that they have with each other. And, and I'm not advocating shutting down all churches. I think churches do a lot of good. I know a lot of people get a lot of comfort and support out of going to church and they've got lots of very good char charities and, you know, I'm sure they're not all perfect but then no organisation's perfect either and it's it's part of our society but it doesn't mean we're, we're not smart enough to be able to distinguish between a destructive cult and a legitimate church. Yeah, and I often think that the religious freedom angle is kind of a smokescreen anyway because I look at a lot of cultic groups that aren't considered religions at all in the first place. So you've got these other groups that operate with the same 
coercive control dynamics and it's not about religious freedom. It's something else entirely that's going on here. Yeah, 100%. And they just fall all under the one banner and we should as a society be able to distinguish quite easily between between legitimate church and an abusive group. It's, it's, it's not hard. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to listen to the ex-members <laughs> rather than just go to the leaders. I mean, the police sometimes and the, the council would, would go to the leaders and, and ask them. It's like going to a, a, a wife abuser, or, you know, are you abusing your wife? Well, no, I love her. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Just clearing that up. It's like they go to the perpetrator of the crimes to ask them whether they're doing that crime and they're never going to admit to it. Um, whereas you talk to the ex-members and they'll tell you what's going on and you, you need to be able to believe them because, you know, otherwise you're just talking to either the abuser or the currently abused who is too scared and possibly probably not in the right psychological frame to be able to give an honest answer. Yeah, I just totally agree with you. So I wondered what resources you think might be helpful uh, for people who are leaving a group like this. Okay, firstly, our social welfare system here is is excellent. Um, that's That makes it leaving in Australia very easy compared to other countries where it becomes very, very difficult. Uh, we need to be much more better trained in the... Um, counselling field. I know when I left, I tried to get counselling. I saw all these different counsellors, psychologists, none of them had a clue. And that's not their fault. It was pretty new back then. But there needs to be be more training in that. There could even be some education, although I don't want to put more work onto teachers. <laughs> uh, but, you know, how to, how to um, identify uh, coercive control groups and that that spills over into you know how to identify an abusive relationship because an abusive relationship between one one man and one woman is exactly the same as an abusive relationship between one person and an entire group um it's it it goes down exactly the same path so more education in that would would be good um as well and the best thing we could do is to make it legally possible to charge the leaders of these groups with uh, coercive control. And once these leaders start becoming personally responsible and facing uh, jail time and fines, I reckon a lot of these groups will change their practices very, very quickly because the leaders are all cowards. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to be made accountable. But at the moment, they've just got open slather to, to do whatever abusing they, they want because they're protected as this uh, freedom of religion. And the only investigation that happens is with them and with current members. And more weight has to be put on the ex-members and their experience. And it, like it's not rocket science. You join this group, you give all your money up, you come out of this group 10 years later, you got nothing, <laughs> you know. If that doesn't show some form of financial abuse, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard. It's not hard to join the dots. 
I also wonder, um, I don't know if you've kept an eye on what's been happening with Gloria Vale in New Zealand. No, I haven't. So there, uh, there have been a, f- a couple of court cases and I think one of the um, one of the authorities there has found that the workers at Gloria Vale should have been considered employees and so that's a line that they're pursuing at the moment. So I also wonder if there could be something on the labour side that we could be looking at. Um, 100%. Uh, I know people who've worked there for years and years, even if they just got their super paid to them, at least when they come out, they've, they've, got, they've got something. And I'd love for someone to take that on in Australia and make these groups accountable, but it's, it's a matter of getting very expensive legal teams together to take, take these people to, to court and... When you come out of these groups, you, you come out with nothing and, yeah, you half half the time you're just trying to keep your life together. And my experience with all the authorities is they just don't want to know. But yeah. I'm sure something like that could happen in Australia and, and should should happen. And it, it is, it's just such a huge onus on essentially like traumatised people as well to have to push this stuff. Yeah. It can be very hard to do. Exactly. Yeah. So I had a question which was about how are you and the and other ex-members dealing with the aftermath of your involvement? I myself, what I do, because my, my experience was only for two years and it was 21 years ago, people say, why are you still banging on about this? And the reason I am banging on about this and why I'm still doing these things, it's for the kids in there. Like as soon as I got out, there was one kid in there in particular I spent 10 years <laughs> trying to get help get him out and eventually he, he got kicked out anyway um, and then I helped with getting the rest of the family out as well. I do it for the people who can't help themselves and if I can save one kid from going in there and being abused the way children in there are abused and some of them are abused a lot more than others. Some of them have it pretty easy, some of them don't. So that's that's how I deal with being in there, and I've I've got a social conscience that I, I need to do that. Other people who leave, a lot of them run away and hide, and try and pretend it was all good, and you know ignore them. Like I have very few friends who who have left the twelve tribes. Most of them believe what they were told about me in there, like I'm the antichrist as far as they're concerned. And they're still in that mindset where they they just continue on the the mind thing or the way of thinking as they were in the 12 tribes. And, you know, I'll message them and they go, it was all good. There was nothing wrong with it. You know, it was fine. It's like, well, if it's all good, why aren't you still there? Mm. Because if you don't believe it, or if you still believe it, you need to be there, or you're going to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, so don't don't lie to me saying no, it, it's all okay. It, it's not okay, and it's because they haven't got the help they've needed. And I think they they carry a whole lot of guilt because I carry guilt. I was there for two years. If you're there for 20, 25 years, and especially if you're there with a leader, and you could be implicated on all sorts of child abuse and and dead babies and all sorts of financial fraud. You know, they, they, they just shut up and hide. And 
it'd be really good for those people to get the help they needed so they can come forward and start exposing it, not make up, make up lies or anything, just expose the group for what they are. But they're, they're too scared to do that. Then there are other families who were just totally abused and, you know, they're going to spend the rest of their life in, in counselling and suffering and, you know, they've, they have to rebuild their lives. And you come out as a 40-year-old without any money, you've you got to get your super together, you've got to buy a house, you've got to, you know, provide for your family. And, and that, that sort of becomes overwhelming for some of them and, you know, and some of them work really hard and get it done. And I know one family in particular who's, yeah, although they carry a lot of guilt, they're actually, you know, they're doing okay now. And so, so there is hope for when people leave that they can get their lives back on track. And I think it's a really understandable response for some people to just try to put it aside and get on with their lives and bury it and not deal with it. Like that's a psychologically, that's a really common response to a traumatic situation. So I guess, yeah, it's hard to think that people might not be getting the help that they need because I feel that the best thing you can do is really talk about this stuff and face up to it. But I absolutely understand that for some people that's not possible for them. So I guess I don't want to be too hard on those people either. Yeah, I I agree. I'm, I'm like you. I'm an open book. I go out and get help. Yeah, it's. I, I just think these people would be doing themselves a lot more um, help if, if they would go reach out and get, get some help and... Mm you know, and not be guilty about what they did because they're victims as well. Mm. You know, you know, it doesn't matter how high up they were, they're still a victim of, of the whole organisation. And, you know, I'd love to see some of them again, but they've just shut me out. Yeah. I think shame is that type of emotion that most humans will do anything to avoid it. Yeah. But sometimes you've got to recognise it. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, and me personally, I came out as a much stronger person because of it. I went in there as a pretty uh, ordinary father who didn't have a lot of belief in himself. I came out, I took on my three kids and I've, I've done the best I can. I think I've done a pretty good job. And yeah, so for me, there are positive experiences in there and you need to build on them and work on the ones that, that were quite negative. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I'm also thinking that, you know, you mentioned that you, the social ramifications when you came out were not as bad and yeah. you were in for such a short time. So compared to some people, perhaps you feel that you have the ability to speak out about this stuff a little more easily than some people might. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because because I wasn't as traumatised. I still had my friends. I'm a fairly talkative kind of guy and I, I put everything out there and if you don't like me, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. If you've got a problem with anything I've done, we can have a chat and, you know, you can have your opinion, I, I can have mine. So I'm not, I'm not as, you know, worried about that as, as some others may be. And, um, yeah, I wish anyone who leaves any cult all the best, but... It's it's good it's good to get help and one of the biggest helps I had was talking to people as well, but when I'd left, <laughs> there was no one for me to talk to, in Australia really, who I connected with. So I spoke to a number of people overseas and 
you know, occasionally people ring me up from overseas and we have long conversations and it, it's just good to get that, that all in context. But, but it was not about how great the 12 tribes was. It was about the reality of it and the suffering and, you know, and why we left and, mm. yeah. And it's, it is a really common problem not to be able to find a therapist who understands the dynamics properly. So I think that that, I totally agree with you that that's an area where we could yeah. really could, help. Yeah, but there's so many so many areas for psychologists and, you know, to become a counsellor is not particularly onerous these days. So, and they can't cover everything, but yeah. um, it's good if you if you go to certain, so if you go to KIFS, I'm sure they've got a few counsellors that are very well versed in, in the cult field. Yeah. And not only if you're leaving a cult, even if you've got loved ones or family or friends in there to, to help you understand why they're there and the best thing you can do to help them get out. Was there anything else you wanted to share about what you've learned from this experience? No, <laughs> but I would like to talk about the coercive control legislation. Yeah, please. Okay, so there's New South Wales has passed and Queensland passed just the other day the coercive control legislation that it's illegal to have coercive control over a partner. Um, however, it doesn't extend to a church or cult or group settings. And it's... I th I, I'm no legal expert, but I don't know any other law where it's illegal to do it if it's one-on-one, -on -one, but it's okay in a group setting. I mean, the legislation says it's illegal um, to make the other person dependent on or subordinate to the person, isolating the other person from friends, relatives or other sources of support, controlling, regulating or monitoring the other person's day-to-day -day activities, depriving the other person of or restricting the other person's freedom of action, depriving the other person of or restricting the other person's access to support services, including the services of health practitioners and legal practitioners, and frightening, humiliating, degrading, or punishing the other person. Now, you couldn't get a more perfect definition of a cult than the legislation for coercive control, but unfortunately, it, it doesn't. It doesn't cover those groups, and I guarantee if we um, if we change the legislation so it, it can be used against these groups, um, and an ex-member can prove that they had no money, they were separated from their family and friends, they had no access to television, newspapers, internet, um, they were financially dependent, they were withheld, you know, health services. And these, these people could get charged, you know, all of a sudden it changes the whole dynamic of cults in Australia and I think it would have a huge impact. So we just need that legislation to go to the next step and to be able to be moved to, to cults. And, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure our legal system is capable of, you know, seeing the difference between a legitimate church and these groups that are doing those exact things which is why they are a cult and they need to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That might have been your answer to my next question, which was what kind of interventions do you think might be able to assist those still enmeshed in organisations like the tribes? Okay. So firstly, if the coercive control laws get get um, passed for groups, that's, that's 
number one. But apart from that, to try and help get people out of these groups, um, it's really up to family and friends these days. Um, there's there's no there's no government agencies for removing people from these groups, so it's up to the family and friends. And to do that, you need to be educated. You need to do your research. You need to read the books, and probably try and get the help of ex-members and even exit counselling professionals so you can actually extract these people from the groups. I've personally been involved in a number of these things and it's very exciting when you've got someone who's destroying their lives in these groups and at the end of it, give you a hug and walk away and get on with the rest of their lives. And um, yeah, there is nothing more rewarding for me than getting people out of these groups. So you've been around when that successfully happened? Yeah, yeah. That's a rare story. It is, it is. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice and it's, it's a very specialised field. Are there any other things you'd like to see going forwards that might help protect people and decrease some of the harms? One thing I'd like to see go forward is if this... Um, case uh, that the police are investigating gets gets shut down or doesn't move forward in a timely fashion, I, th I think there needs to be an inquiry in, into the whole thing and and why it happened, why nothing came of it. Um, I don't see how you can dig up human remains and close a case with, with nothing happening. And if they can... Um, sort of bring some some charges to, to the leaders. You know, there's there's some pretty simple ones there, I, I believe, with medical neglect um, that they were giving uh, Rose in particular, uh, very, very simply, you know, caused the death of her child. Um, it's, 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 not, it's not hard and some accountability needs to happen because these leaders are just in there thinking they're invincible and untouchable and they need to realise they're not. And when these investigations happen to one group, all the other groups are watching it. And once you set a precedence, um, particularly in, in the courts of law, it, it becomes a lot easier to, to go after these other groups. And that, to me, is the biggest change that we can do. We've reached the end of my questions. Yep. So was there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, the Bushdorf side hole. <laughs> what's the what's the DJ name again? <laughs> DJ Maddie K. DJ Maddie K. <laughs> I've only got a DJ name. I don't actually DJ because I'm hopeless. <laughs> no, I'm refinding my lost youth at the moment. Um, <laughs> and fair no. enough. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for making the trip to come and speak with me today. It's been a real pleasure. No, the pleasure is all mine, Sarah, and thank you for all the work you do and exposing you know, groups that need to be exposed.
You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. There's some exciting new merch in the Tea Public merch store too. Check out the link in the show notes. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say. Something you can do for free is give the podcast a rating on the podcast platform of your choice. I'd really appreciate that. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex was produced by me, Sarah Steele. It was edited and mixed by Matt Brazel, and music was by Joe Gould. A big thanks to Matthew Klein for speaking with me. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.